Dose of Leadership Podcast, episode 246. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, welcome to Dose of Leadership. Richard Ryerson here. Thanks for tuning into the show. As always, so appreciative. Hey, thanks for your patience. I've been a little bit on a hiatus, been really busy over the holidays, and had to do some mandatory flying training up in Phoenix. It put me behind, but I'm back at it again. 2016 with a uh, bunch of shows coming down the pike and a lot of great guests, um, a lot of exciting guests. Even today confirmed they're going to come on the show. Exciting things to come with Dose of Leadership and uh, excited to bring it to you. Again, thanks for tuning in. This is the show where we focus on that topic of leadership because you've heard me say it time and time again because it applies to all of us, every aspect of our life is impacted by leadership. And remember this, how well you understand and apply leadership, how well you lead is going to determine ultimately how successful you're going to become. No matter what avenue of life you're in, you need to understand leadership and apply it in your day-to-day lives. It's an intentional journey, a journey that never stops. You never plant the flag and say, I have arrived as a leader. It's having that humble, teachable spirit continually, day after day, developing those day-by-day habits. And it's the small things that you do intentionally day-by-day that eventually add up and produce a life of significance. And that's what it's all about. Again, so excited that you're here. Again, thanks for your patience. I've been a little bit on a hiatus, but I'm ready to hit it back. Uh, i got a lot of um, episodes to release and come down the pike. Um, i got a, a co-host that I'm going to start sharing with you, a friend of mine, Devin Walker, who's going to join me on this show and do some fireside chats as he gets ready to launch his own show. And so before we launch his show, he's going to be on here every now and then talking leadership, life, and entrepreneurship as well. So again, so many exciting things coming down the pike. If you're finding value in Dose of Leadership, please take the time to leave a rating and a review. I know it's not intuitive. iTunes doesn't make it easy for us, but if you can, go to iTunes subscribe, rate, and review. You can do the same thing on Stitcher. And uh, again, just if you take the time, it does so much helping for the visibility of the show. Again, Inc. uh, in December recognized this show. So thank you, Inc. Magazine, for making the top 100 list or 100 podcasts that are going to make you smarter and better. I think that's the name of it. But anyway, Dose of Leadership made 33. So thank you, Inc. Magazine, for that honor. And I'm humbled at that. Okay, great show today. Lindsay McGregor. I talked to her uh, early December, so this is uh, a long time coming on this posting. So, But man, I really enjoyed this conversation. She is a co-author of a New York Times bestselling book called Prime to Perform. It's how to build, build the highest performing cultures through the science of total motivation. She is the CEO and co-founder of a company called the Vega Factor. I love the name of that a business that's a startup building technology to help organizations transform their cultures. And I am so passionate about that. I love talking with individuals who are all about creating leadership cultures, being a disruptive force within organizations. And um, 
Lindsay certainly is on the forefront of that. She has led projects at McKinsey Company before, working with large Fortune 500 companies, nonprofits, universities, school systems, etc. And uh, again, Vega Factor is a company building technology that helps all sizes of organizations. Prime to perform the book, and we talk about this a lot, we really kind of geek out on this. And that's what I love about Lindsay. She really is a geek at heart, and I love that about her. And Prime to perform really gets into the heart of how you can make your culture, an outstanding culture, a leadership culture, because she talks about the science behind the magic. You know, we tend to think, you know, let's change the culture. It's a magical journey. But Lindsay gets in and with this book says there is a science to be predictive and to be powerful so that you really can use it to unlock people's innate desire. And I love that. We do. We have this innate desire to innovate, to experiment, to adapt. And Lindsay and I talk about this extensively in this conversation. I really think you're going to enjoy it. Again, Prime to Perform is the book. It teaches you how to build great cultures using using a systematic and sustainable approach. And we get into it uh, in this. Whether you're a first person, a startup, or a large organization, I really think you're going to enjoy this conversation. So without further ado, Lindsay McGregor from The Vega Factor on Dose of Leadership. Well, Lindsay, so excited to have you on the show. Welcome to Dose of Leadership. Thank you, Richard. It's a pleasure to be here. And I'm excited to talk about this. I talk about culture a lot when it comes to leadership. In fact, I think it's the heart of leadership. How did you get so passionate about this topic of culture and leadership? You know, it started for me in two call centers that went very, very differently. One was the call center of a large bank. And it was as big as a football field. And it was filled with gray cubicles. And I thought this was going to be a pretty depressing project Mm -hmm. where we help this bank um, work and improve during the financial crisis. How do you respond to the financial crisis? And we started in what was quite a... um, you know, when we started, people were skeptical. They were scared. They didn't, their customers were in trouble. They didn't really know what they were going to do. And they spent all day on the phones, like a cog in a machine, one phone call after the other, after the other, after the other. But by the end of this project of starting to implement all of this science of high-performing culture, the organization completely turned around to where everybody was excited to come into work every day. They had pictures of the customers that they had helped up on their cubicles. And they just were buzzing with energy. Meanwhile, you know, that same year I was in a call center that was supposed to be fun and interesting. It was a brand new startup company that was selling online advertising to small and medium businesses. It was new. It was interesting. It was impressive. And yet a couple months into the project, about a third of the team quit um, because the culture that we had created was really unpleasant and stressful. And at that point in time, I just thought, you know, never again. I don't want to be in a situation where we've created an environment that people want to quit. And I couldn't figure out the difference between the two cultures because both were run by really nice and friendly people. The leaders were good. And, but I couldn't figure out what they were doing differently that made for such different work environments. And that's where this research all really started. That's interesting. So on the outset, you, you just, it wasn't clear to you? I mean, it, I mean, if you look at the two side by side, it just wasn't that obvious? It wasn't because people were nice and friendly. But what we found out is that the way that we were inspiring people was very, very different. Hmm. At, 
at the heart of it all, at the heart of this research, we found out something that at the end of the day was embarrassingly or surprisingly simple. And it's probably intuitive to many of your listeners, which is that why we work determines how well we work. That the why determines how well. And in one call center, we were inspiring people to work for all of the right reasons because of love of the work, of care about their customers. And in the other, we were using all of this pressure, sort of a a lot of stress and emotional and economic pressure to get people to do things. And it created two very different environments. It's interesting you bring that up. And it's so true. I think we we inherently or maybe um, stereotypically think it is about the emotional, the economic, and the inertia that's going to produce a positive result, but they can kind of work against us, right? It's true. These three negative motivators um, tend to really reduce the highest levels of performance, Mm -hmm. things like creativity and innovation and adaptability. Um, You know, emotional pressure is when you're doing something because you feel guilt or shame or FOMO or your prestige chasing, right? This is why I played the piano growing up was because (laughs) my mom used a lot of emotional (laughs) pressure. And I was a terrible piano student. I cut corners all of the time. Um, our economic pressure is when you get somebody to do something through rewards and punishments. Right, holding the carrot in front of them, yeah, thinking we're going to get better performance out of them, you know, by giving them the incentives and rewards, yeah. Exactly, and you know that if you wake up on Wednesday and go into work only for the paycheck, it's not going to be the same as if you wake up on Wednesday and you go in because you actually love what you do. Right. And then inertia is that sense of, I have no idea why I'm still working. I'm showing up for work today simply because I showed up yesterday. Yeah. And that's surprisingly common in the workforce. I know. It's like it's almost like epidemic. I in the more you look, it's almost like wow, we're just bathing in this kind of mediocrity and we don't know we we sometimes we don't think it can be any better, right? It's true, and I I'm sure that I inspired inertia in many of my teams before I learned about all of this science because I knew enough not to use pressure, right? I didn't come in every day and use sticks and carrots. Right. But I didn't know as a leader the value of using these positive motivators and how active you actually have to be as a leader. I thought that if you gave somebody tons of space and were very hands-off that they would be happy. And it turns out that that's just not the case. Yeah, you got to tie it into something. You got to tie it into being part of something special, unique, something bigger than yourself, something that you know that what you're doing is actually contributing to the greater good, making a dent somewhere in the universe, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and that's what we call the, the purpose motive when you're doing something right. because you really deeply believe in its impact. And I personally went on a journey of looking for the work where I found the most purpose. But what I learned over time is that purpose is the second most powerful motivator. When you actually look at all of the research, mm. almost twice as powerful is what we call the play motive. And this is when you're doing something because you love the activity itself. Well, that's interesting. Um, Expand on that. What do you so, you know, play is more and imper- more impactful or more significant than purpose. That's right. It's about double the strength. So play, it's not the ping pong table and it's not the video games in the corner of the room. Right. Um, we're and not talking about bringing the your dog distractions, to work and right? sk- skateboarding down the hall or riding your razor scooter down the hall or anything like that. What, what exactly. do you mean? Yeah. It's, it's when you find play in the work that you're doing itself. So when you love crafting that blog post or you love um, taking photography or you love playing a sport 
those are your hobbies are normally things that you do because of pure play. And the highest performers at work find that play in how they interact with customers or how they optimize a process or how they write or code. Um, all of these different examples are play at work. What do you say, though, to, I mean, some of it, sometimes, I mean, work is called work for that reason. Sometimes we just have to do some of the non-sexy grunt work, you know, the, the, the nitty-gritty tasks that just have to be done. How do you balance the two? It's, it's a great question. Um, there are things that no matter what, I'm only going to be motivated by purpose. I'm never going to be motivated by play. Right. Um, but what was surprising to us when we did this research is we measured these, the six motives. So play, purpose, potential, emotional pressure, economic pressure, and inertia across about 20,000 people around the world in a range of industries. And we were surprised by how prevalent play was mm. in the workplace. If you worked at a fast food restaurant or um, in retail stores or in airlines, it wasn't, it was across industries that people were able to find play. So play, purpose, I'm, I'm going to get back to this play piece a little bit from a tactical perspective, but there's another uh, third P that you're talking about here and that's potential. And how does that come into play as a, um, as a positive um, motivator or, or or igniter of motivation, I guess. Yep. The potential is when you're doing something because it's going to enhance your own potential. Right. So for example, a teacher with play might love coming up with lesson plans and enjoy working with teach with students. A teacher with purpose deeply believes in the impact, so educated students. And a teacher with potential is motivated by the how that job is going to enhance her future potential. So maybe, for example, he or she wants to be a principal one day. So that's right. the potential motive at work. I love all of those, and it makes perfect sense. I mean, let me give you an example. I, this is a real-life example that happened with me when I was in an organization, and I was the vice president of operations for a hotel company. And uh, me and the CEO, it was like oil and water. We did not see eye-to-eye -eye <laughs> in a lot of things. And um, this it was a very difficult relationship. And we the primary position we had at our, at our properties was a property manager that didn't make because of the numbers and to keep the, the margins were so tight and the salary was um relatively low in fact it was between the 29 to 32,000 dollar range to be a property manager for for this hotel and the argument was is that we would never get an A player in that organization at that salary range and though I agreed that, you know, money is a great fact, motivating factor, but if, if, if it wasn't an option for us to pay more money, then we had to look at something else. And my argument always was, look, you can find those people if you create, like you said, in the purpose part of it, like, why are they, what are they part of? Are they part of something unique and special? Yes. And then I focused on the potential part too. show them what the potential is where they could eventually be lay out a groundwork or a path where they could eventually be maybe the C CEO someday or the CFO or something, right? Lay out that potential, that groundwork. And I gave the example of enterprise rent a car and they use all three of those. I just, it just hit me while I was talking to you that they use all three of these things, potential purpose and play. Um, and they get these young adults that are 23, 24, fresh out of college and they're so motivated because they understand the purpose of why they're there and they it, they understand the environment, the play environment, but they also understand the potential. I mean, that just hit me while I was talking to you. What do you, what do you think about that? You know, it makes a lot of sense. Your story also reminded me of Southwest Airlines where, yeah. you know, Southwest Airlines is the low cost provider 
it doesn't pay its people more than the other airlines out there. And so much about the airline industry is the same. Same planes, same terminals, same terrible food. And yet Southwest uses far more play, purpose, and potential and less of those negative motives. And they have far greater um, employee total motivation, which is that measure of play plus purpose plus potential minus all the negative things. We call it TOMO for short. So they have far higher TOMO despite being the low-cost player. And they have far greater customer experience than many other um, airlines in their industry. And so you're right that you don't have to be the top payer. You can actually compensate people through your culture. I love that. It's so true. And, you know, I bring up the example when, I, when this example with the CEO that I was arguing with, the same thing. I always He hated that I would bring up the Marine Corps, but that's where I came from. But I told him, I said, why do you think people join the Marine Corps? Do you think they, you know, join because of the pay and the benefits? They join because they're part of something special and unique. And that purpose and that potential is very high. The play fact that the, the play thing is is new to me. I think in t- instinctively I know about the play thing, but I love how you put it. It's just I've never thought about it in those terms, or even used the word play for that matter. Yeah, we've we've struggled too. In you know, we used to struggle all the time talking to executives about the need to invest in culture, because even though about ninety percent of them say that culture is important. They never had a way to measure the impact of their culture or figure out if it would affect the bottom line. And so one of the really critical things in our work was the first time we were actually able to measure the six motives and show somebody their total motivation score and show that it actually links to their bottom line um, was a huge, huge transformative moment for us. That's great. I mean, how did you, what kind of metrics did you come up with? I mean, how do you measure that you're improving in the potential and the purpose and the play. I mean, what, what are you measuring? Is it employee engagement? Is that your, your main driver? I mean, how do you know? So we ask six simple questions, one for each motive about why you continue to work. So for example, play would be, I continue to work because I find the work itself fun to do. Right. And then we take the response to each of those six questions and we use some simple math um, to come up with one score, which is your total motivation factor. Um, and we've been able to, by analyzing total motivation scores across companies, we've been able to find out that play is twice as powerful as purpose, which is about twice as powerful as potential. And then emotional pressure starts to hurt and economic pressure starts, hurts more and inertia hurts even more. And we've had these amazing opportunities to measure the total motivation of companies and find some fascinating things. So for example, we were sitting down with, um, the founder of a hedge fund, um, or excuse me, the the head of a the CEO of a hedge fund, and you would think that that would be an, an, somebody going into that meeting might say, oh, it's going to be about economic pressure, but we found that no, that the highest performing stock pickers, the ones that were doing the best, were actually motivated by the play, purpose, and yeah. potential in yeah. their work. And it's so true, um, you know. And the evidence is, and I, you know, in your book, the example you use is the airline industry, and I was a pilot at American, and I can tell you, and I know pilots in every one of the four major airlines, American, United, Delta, and Southwest. I know intimately people that work at every single one of them, and I worked at American. And I can see just in- instinctively when you just said that, why those three drivers of um, potential purpose and play, how it's so much better at Southwest. I know that. And uh, yeah, it's it, so, I mean, the evidence is pretty s- striking, is it not? 
It is. It's, it's been fascinating to not only see all of the quantitative evidence, and there's hundreds of professors that have studied this, and they've put people in fMRI machines to see how your brain is working when you're motivated by play instead of economic pressure. But what's so powerful about this is that people have personal stories, just like you described, of seeing this being true in their daily lives, right? right it's why right. I was terrible at piano but loved English literature, for <laughs> right, example. Right. I wasn't a different person. I was just motivated by different things in those two situations. Well, this is fascinating to me because I talk about culture all the time, and this is the first time I've really heard somebody articulate this and kind of with, with science, almost like a science. You, you truly are a culture nerd, as you put it on your, on your website. <laughs> definitely. You definitely are, but it's so cool because it's it, it makes perfect sense. And so you're actually putting some science or at least some some um, solid numbers behind all of this. So it's really good. What do you, I think, you know, you, you mentioned that um, companies, um, certainly when you hear them talk about culture, like, yes, yes, the means, and you said they don't really know what to do. I would even argue that we, as organizations, we don't know really how to plant the seeds of a culture. Do you, I, I think it even goes further back. I mean, do you agree with that? It's true. We don't usually manage our culture on purpose. It's right. frequently something that just sort of emerges like unmanaged. Almost, Nobody's yeah. in charge and you wake up one day and realize, so you oh, have I have a culture. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So, okay, let's, let's take it from a tactical perspective. I'm curious. Here I am. I'm maybe a mid-level, you know, about to breach the cusp of upper-level management. I'm working in a pretty mediocre organization. I look at the leaders above me and they just don't seem to get it. They're just wrapped up in the, in the emotional, the economic, the inertia plugs. They're not even focusing on potential purpose and play. What can I do if I'm right there in the middle, aside from leaving and going somewhere else? What can I do to affect change in the organization? Yep, that's a great question. There's, we, we always start when we're helping a company transform their culture just with education, with teaching people about the science behind high performance. Right. So for example, um, we take team leaders through an exercise with their teams where they find out where their teammates find play and where they find purpose and potential and what might be causing emotional and economic pressure and inertia. And just by having that conversation, people start to identify all of these things that they didn't realize were affecting why they come to work every day. Right. And there's actually quite a bit that a team leader can do to affect the motives of his team. Even simple things like when your teammate is, when you're giving a teammate an assignment, what's the reason why you're explaining that assignment mm -hmm. needs to be done, right? Yep. I used to say like, get it done because like Jack told us we have to do it, right? right? <laughs> or get it done because there's a deadline. That's a pressure motive for right. doing something, right? It's it, quick and we use it because it's quick and it's easy and it makes the conversation really short. Right. But if I took the time to actually explain why this was going to help us have impact, which is purpose or um, why, what's going to be interesting, what, where I'm going to find play, where I'm going to learn from this new project. And I'll go a lot further. <clears throat> Excuse me. So one, we start by educating ourselves and team leaders, and then by educating executives of a firm so they can actually see the data. Once executives see the data, it's usually transformative. Yeah. I, an executive we were sitting down with the other day said, you know, I've got a clear business case for what my shareholders want. And I've got a clear business, pretty clear business case for how valuable customer experience is. But this culture thing is just soft and fluffy. So you're asking me to choose between dollars, dollars, and magic. Yeah. Right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it's like, I, I can't choose magic. <laughs> right. 
until he started to be able to connect. Like every point of motive, total motivation was actually uh, predicted the so, a revenue for his people. And mm-hmm. he could actually turn that magic into a science. I love so we always start with education. Yeah. You know, I just, it struck me too, is when I talk when I hear that and uh, in the Marine Corps, we call that commander's intent. And that's how, that's how you close that gap between strategic planning and strategic execution. And it becomes a distinction without a difference. If you, if you're doing what you're talking about, it's almost like, look, if I take the time to invest and tell you where you fit into this, this cog and why it's so important. And I'm going to show you two levels up why, what you're doing over here may seem unimportant, but let me tell you how this affects the overall grand scheme of things and the big picture and why what you do in your success is critical to the overall success of the organization. Just taking that time to kind of peel back the curtain and show them the bigger picture, two levels up is kind of what I always like to say, that lends itself to accountability. It lends itself to having this person you're talking to start to own their um, assignment, their plan, and they come up with the plan. They come up with the how. And, I, and what I'm doing as a leader, I'm, I'm spending most of my time and energy focusing on what to achieve and the outcome I want instead of trying to, like you just said, oh, I'm just going to tell Steve to go do this because I told him to. Right? It's, it's a little more effort on the front end. But when Steve hits that kind of roadblock, he's, the, 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 the payoff in the end is he's not coming to you asking, what do I do now? He's kind of you're creating a culture that's asking for forgiveness instead of permission, which I think is, is where we should be. It's so true. You're probably far more familiar with this than I am, but we were interviewing soldiers about commander's intent, exactly as you said, as we were un- trying to understand high performance in the research for this book. And one soldier told us that you know, in he would be going on a mission in Iraq, and if the commander's intent was to make friends and build trust in the community, that was a very different intent than if it was, you know, than if it wasn't there. Right. And so the reason knowing that that was the intent was so valuable was because when the plans changed, when things went wrong, yep. which things always go wrong, he was able to adapt in a way that was still in the spirit of the commander's intent. And that's what we found is so powerful about total motivation is when people are motivated for the right reasons and they understand the play and purpose and potential, they're far more adaptive in their work. Yes, it plants the seeds. I love that you said that. It plants the seeds for a decentralized decision-making organization, a culture where people are thinking and acting like leaders at every level. And that's what we want. We don't want automaton robots that are being told what to do. I mean, that's scientific management theory. That should be dead and buried, right? I mean, this is what we need to focus on is getting people to adapt to this kind of, I mean, let's face it, it's a chaotic environment and we need to have people who are calm and confident in that chaotic environment, in my opinion. That's so true. It reminds me of a great story that we learned about with Toyota production, Toyota's assembly lines, where people assume that somebody working on the assembly line is basically has a very robotic job. Right. But it turns out that Toyota goes out of its way to help its people find play in their work so that they can adapt, where any single person working on that assembly line can come up with an idea for a new tool. Yeah. There's a machinist in the back that will go make it up, mock it up, and they can test it and try it pretty quickly. And so even those assembly line workers are have to adapt, and even they are finding play in their work. That's a great example. And it's also, too, they're also decision makers. They have the delegated authority to stop everything because something isn't 
like it's supposed to be, or they're seeing something that's amiss, right? They have, exactly. the, they have the authority to stop everything. It's, and so you're absolutely right. They're not just, you know, Henry Ford Model T automatons. They're actually decision makers on, on, on the front line. Exactly. And there's the famous story of GE taking photographs of every inch of a Toyota plant and said, you know, build this to look identical to that one, like the same stickers, the same paint, (laughs) the same everything. And they built an identical plant, but it couldn't return the same levels of performance. And it was because it was the culture, not just the objects. Yeah. Gosh, it's so true. You know, I talk about culture so much. So maybe it's just, you know, for three years on the show, I've been talking about it. I've been talking about it for years prior to this. Um, the book I'm writing talks about culture a lot, but th- in your estimation, and you worked with McKinsey, right? So you've worked with a lot of organizations and and uh, on the front lines helping improve their process. How how difficult is it for people to understand culture? I guess I mean, is it is it so foreign, or do you think some of the top leaders in the top organizations really embrace it and really want to do something about it? So most leaders believe that it's critical. Like we. We're in a meeting the other day, and I think with a senior executive, and I think the word culture came up uh, 27 times in 90 minutes. So they get that it's important. But before now, before you had this scientific approach to actually engineering a culture on purpose, nobody knew what to do about it. Right. right? You could put up massage chairs or throw (laughs) some nice lunches or get some ping pong tables. But that didn't feel right. I mean, up until now, it's been copy Google, copy GE, but those cultures don't feel authentic to most other organizations. They're different. Um, And so once you actually teach people the science and that there's a way to manage your culture like a system on purpose, then people just dive right in. They say, you know, you are articulating what I've always known in my gut. Like, finally, this is something I can explain to my peers. Let's get going. Well, I love the fact, and your company is Vega Factor, right? I mean, that, that's, that's correct. Company. And the mission is to, I love this, is to unlock human potential. I mean, that's everything you're about. And I love what you say there on your website is that it, it, most people rely on gut feeling rather than science to build a great culture. And I would fall into that category and this is why it's so exciting to me that you put some science behind this because i you know we all like the data and i suppose the people who are kind of skeptical about culture if you can throw data and it it probably that's kind of the the transformative uh tipping point probably for most organizations we are data nerds you should have seen (laughs) the debates that we had in the writing of this book um with our publisher about how many charts were appropriate for a book <laughs> and so for the people that love data we there's a slide share out there with far far more than we were ever allowed to put into the book uh, there's very few in the book I, apparently people prefer stories over numbers well, which yeah, i good. agree with as well <laughs> but it's good to, i mean it's exciting that you're doing both and that you have the numbers to back it up i mean that's one of the problems i had with I mean, I love Jim Collins, and you know, and he's a data nerd too, right? And he's always about the data. But his best chapter in Good to Great is that book about leadership culture, level five leadership, in my opinion. I think that is like the primer for anybody who's interested in dipping their toe into leadership is you can just read that one chapter. Good to Great is a great book, obviously, and we're all familiar with it. But you know, the fact that you're putting stories and culture and backing up with data is exciting to me. What I'm curious about the name Vega Factor. Where did that come from? So Vega is a star in the sky. And um, because of the way the Earth rotates on its axis, the North Star is going to change over time from Polaris, which is today's North Star, to Vega. 
And so the word Vega Factor was a reminder to us that the world is always changing. And even these things you think are fixed and are permanent truths, like the North Star, change over time. And you have to build a culture that enables your organization to adapt over the long term. I love that. Man, you guys really are nerds. I love it, though. <laughs> but it's, plus the URL was available. So <laughs> right, plus the URL is available. Yeah, that's good. But no, that's so true, um, or it's so exciting that, that you're focused on adapting and improvising and overcoming. I mean, I, I don't, you know, again, this is my world coming from the Marine Corps, so it's exciting to see an organization that is talking. That is kind of your primary factor at, to drive potential and unlocking potential and it's kind of like to me it's like you're, you seem like you're an organization that is all about punching mediocrity in the face and that's what, what's exciting so <laughs> that could be our new slogan <laughs> yeah well this is exciting what about your uh, partner there's a guy that helped wrote the book give, give a little credit to him too what's what's he all about and how did he help with with the book yep so neil began this research about 20 years ago um, when he was asked to help his at the organization he was working for, which was a big Fortune 500 company, to help transform its culture. And he began to research and he just came up with a whole bunch of top 10 lists. Um, and he was an MIT nerd, so he thought, nope, I need, I want to treat this like a science, like an engineering discipline, not, I can't do t- lists of top 10s. And so he began over the last 20 years to really dig into this research. Um, so he's a, he's a culture nerd among culture nerds. (laughs) That's awesome. How did you get hooked up with him? So we were working together on, at McKinsey on one of these projects together where we were beginning to test different types of motives in the workplace. Um, so how does purpose affect performance, for example? Um, how does, you know, stress affect performance? And we started to work together on to really implement this and, and experiment with the science in companies. And one of the huge benefits is that you can go work across many, many companies and test the same things and run experiments and see what's working and what's not. Well, this is exciting. I'm, I'm you know, I, I got familiar with the book for this interview, but I'm excited to read this thing from cover to cover. And I just have a feeling this is going to be one of my go-to books. I have about six that I go to. Uh, of course, Good to Great's been up there, but this one is I'm excited to read. It's called Prime to Perform, How to Build the Highest Performing Cultures Through the Science of Total Motivation. Um, how long has it been out? It's been out since October, not very long. How's it, how's it doing? It's doing well, thank you. We were really pleased and honored to be on the New York Times bestseller list and the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. And we've gotten tons of really amazing emails from people. You know, our emails are in the book, just lindsay at primetoperform.com. And we've just been getting these stories from people about how their organizations, like one woman wrote to us about how her organization just um, was really using economic pressure to motivate people. And she started to introduce this new language and it was starting to spread. Another guy wrote to us and told us he quit his job after reading the book. Oh, wow. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, he realized he was there just out of inertia. Um, so that's been the most rewarding part is to just really see and hear from people that are living this every day. Well, I, it doesn't surprise me because when you put it in the perspective that you have, the potential purpose in play, which is easy to remember, and knowing and kind of pointing out that we never really focus on that, but if you do, and we do focus on the emotional, the economic, and the inertia – it's almost like when you hear it explained to you, you go, uh, yeah, it's true. And you think back everywhere you've worked, everywhere you've worked, 
it's in the, in the reason why you hated working where you you did it was because they were probably heavy in one of those three the emotional economic and inertia i mean i can just think every place i've worked that i thought was just miserable it was because we were heavily weighted in one of those three just, just yeah it's amazing that human beings are just wired this way yeah. you know we want to play that's our, our desire to learn and grow we want to have purpose we want to have potential um it's just who we are and, you know we started out when we started doing this research we were analyzing a hundred different mentions dimensions of culture and over time we realized that we could take these hundreds of things and and just actually look at six and that was so elegant, and it explains yeah, so much. It is. It does. It's a good, good job. I mean, congratulations on this. I mean, I'm just, I'm, I got to be honest with you. I, I read, read and hear a lot of books come on the show. I'm very excited about this one. This one just really is resonating with me. Just having this conversation and and what I the research I did for this interview. It's just, I'm really excited for what you're what you've created. No, thank you, Richard, for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I think, you know, you and and your listeners are so passionate about this stuff that you are the people that we want to reach, right? To build a That's group right. of people that are really trying to transform the operating system of the way we run organizations. Yep. It's not so much. I mean, it is about execution and the tactics. But if you don't have that culture right, it's all for naught. It's not sustainable. It is exactly. Not sustainable. We you know, we we talk in the book about tactical performance and adaptive performance and they're like yin and yang. You have to have both. Yep. And very few lots of people talk about tactical, but very few talk about the adaptive. You need that culture to drive that adaptive performance. Well, I think that I think we're kind of conditioned to think that things have to be always have to be smooth and perfect and that's just a myth in my opinion. Not that we we are celebrating or try to encourage um, chaotic or chaos, but to me, it's about getting comfortable with it and learning how to thrive within it. Um, chaos isn't sustainable over the long time either, but it's an inevitable reality that we have to be able to confront on a, in a calm and confident manner. And being adaptive is what allows you to to deal with that. And um, mm-hmm. so, I'm, I'm so glad that you you seem to get that. You guys seem to get that, and in, in it's at the heart of this book, I think. It's so true. Well, a little bit about you before we wrap up. How, um, what's next for you and, and Vega Factor and, and what exciting things are on the horizon for you guys? So we spend each and every day rolling up our sleeves and going into the guts of organizations and helping them transform their cultures. Um, so we, when we work with an organization, we, we really help teach them about the science. We also measure everybody's total motivation. And actually, any of your any of your listeners can do that. There's a free survey on primetoperform.com where you can measure the total motivation of your team and what might be driving it or not. And then we help organizations change all the processes in their organization because no matter what your mission statement says or no matter what your leader tells you, your culture is affected by how you do performance reviews, how you compensate people, how your organization is designed. There's a tendency to blame individuals when these processes take over especially right. once organizations get yep. pretty big mm-hmm. yeah what it, i'm curious about you too is who are your heroes whose shoulders are you standing on to to be where you're at right now lots and lots of people um hundreds of academics um the work behind these six motives was first pioneered by these two researchers out of the university of rochester called richard ryan and and Professor DC. And the two of them back in the 80s really realized that you could 
come up with this framework for motives. It was kind of like coming up with the periodic table for motivation. Right. Um, and their work just spawned all of these wonderful um, researchers who've looked at all these six motives around the world. Um, but I mean, I can tell you the the number of books that I've read on these topics of the years that have just been excellent, you know, as you mentioned, from good to great to drive. Um, it, it's, there's just so many people that are really trying to help us all work better. Well, you mentioned, uh, the website, say it again, I'll have links to this, uh, the, the book, the website, how people can get in touch with you, a uh, quick plug yep. for how to get in touch with you. Mm-hmm. Yep. The website is primedtoperform.com. Um, and I'm at lindsay at primedtoperform.com. That's my email address. Um, of course, on you know, you can through the website, you can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter, et cetera. Um, but I think the most powerful thing for readers is, is that total motivation survey where they can measure the strength of their own team. And if um, people have stories or experiences that they'd like to share with us or with a broader community. We'd love to hear them. Very well. Like I said, I'll have links to all this. What a pleasure to meet you, have you on the show, talk about this topic I'm so passionate about, and I'm excited about the work you're doing. Congratulations on the book and everything you're doing at Vega Factor. I look forward to staying in touch with you. Thank you, Richard. It's a pleasure to be here. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.